watches a scary movie. My name is T, and of course, we're talking scary movies. I appreciate you tuning in for another brand new episode. Remember, full episodes go up every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you want to get the podcast version available on all your favorite podcasting platforms, just search Twasm or T Watches a Scary Movie. And if you want the video version, video version goes up 30 minutes later, 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every Wednesday night on the YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Again, youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Make sure <coughs> that you subscribe uh, to both the YouTube page as well as to the podcasting pages. So you can get updates anytime I'm releasing a new review, new news, anything I got coming out. Easiest way, honestly, is going to be to follow my link tree, uh, which is linktr.ee slash t scary movie. Again, that's linktr.ee slash t scary movie. If you go to my link tree, you get the links to the YouTube page, to a couple of the podcasting pages, uh, letterbox pages on there as well, so you can actually catch any of the written reviews I've done. Uh, so tonight, we got a couple things that we're going to be talking about. We're going to jump into episode three of The Last of Us, long, long time. So we're going to be discussing episode three of The Last of Us, and we are also going to be talking about the new M. Night Shyamalan film, Knock at the Cabin. So that's what we got in store for y'all tonight. So we're going to jump right on in. Let's get into discussing long, long time, episode three of The Last of Us. But after uh, that significant death in episode two, um, our characters are sent in search of Bill as a way of hopefully getting the, uh, pointing them in the right direction of the Fireflies. Basically, uh, they need to supply up. They're still planning to go and meet to uh, Joel's brother, Tommy. Uh, they can find him, but they got to stop and get some supplies first. So they decide to check out an acquaintance of Joel and Tess's, who is Bill. Um, but instead of focusing so much on the little, little piece in the game that goes between our group interacting with Bill, arriving, and then their eventual like leaving behind, uh, the show decided to focus a full episode here, uh, kind of a standalone episode, just following up on Bill's backstory. And it was, uh, it, it's a very strong choice because we know that some of the things uh, from the game probably don't translate well to a TV show or even a movie. And even on top of that, you also have to really change a few things to make it more exciting for people that are watching. Because again, uh, everything with Bill is probably at most about uh, about 30 minutes, 30 to 35 minutes, honestly, that you spend with Bill, honestly, in the game. And so choose to elaborate this story. Uh, was a, it was a good choice, honestly, because it doesn't stop them realistically, uh, the, the creators and the writers, from going against anything that they established already in the game. Bill's a character to where we know very little about in the game, and so they can expand the story and kind of tell whatever they want to. And for those that are out there complaining, get over it, y'all. We didn't know that much about Bill. It's a good story. It's a very, very good story. And this episode uh, shows us how Bill uh, eventually came across his partner, Frank, who after the infections begin to start, Bill, uh, Bill, who has a underground bunker beneath his house, decided that he was going to stay put because he doesn't trust the government. He's a bit of a doomsday prepper. And over, uh, over the course of a few years of fending for himself, ends up finding Frank in one of his traps. 
and Frank uh, decides that he's going to hook Frank up with a shower, some food, some drinks. Uh, and ultimately, a romance springs up between the two. And the, uh, the rest of the episode is really chronicling their relationship together and how they live in this small town. But it's just the two of them really doing the upkeep on it. And they eventually meet Tess and Joel and build up this working relationship because Frank desperately wants and needs friends. You know, if you're living in the apocalypse and almost everybody is gone and the only places where you can go to meet people, uh, they're either, either impoverished and being subjected to torture and overlording by the uh, government, or you have dangerous people out there like hunters, or you have people like the fireflies. And so Frank and Bill desperately wanting more companionship uh, strike up this friendship with Joel and Tess and decide that they're going to trade with them on a regular basis. And we get to see a bit of that, but we more so get to see this amazing story of these two men just trying to survive the world that they're in now and how like the love that just blossoms out of a chance, chance meeting, a chance encounter is pretty much all you need in this world. It's, it's, it's really what's pushing you forward. And it's interesting because this episode is really what's going to drive the majority of the rest of the show because in our first two episodes of The Last of Us, we can definitely tell that Joel doesn't really have much of a connection to Ellie outside of, you know, uh, outside of the task really being get Ellie to the Fireflies. You know, Joel's not really that invested in it. He wants this battery that him and Tess are trying to get back, but ultimately it, it, you, we get the idea that if this mission failed if they didn't get this battery if ellie somehow died it wouldn't be that big of a deal to him now of course we realize ellie is immune to this that she is very possibly a cure to everything that's going on and maybe maybe that gives joel a little bit of hope but as we've kind of seen Joel has been through uh, maybe not this specific scenario before, but having hope is something that he just doesn't want to do because it's failed him numerous times in the past 20 years since this new world has emerged and well, losing his daughter and I'm sure a lot of other people along the way. And so Bill really showing Joel that this is really the that there there's a possibility of doing something more with your life. There's a possibility of getting something something different being able to take care of somebody can give you purpose um that is a that's a fantastic way to motivate joel to look after ellie because even now with tess gone joel is looking looking for more to tie him to this mission to push him and you know tess implored joel you know to believe it and to you know to get her to where she needs to go like that this, this is real this is a chance and Joel is still very much mourning the loss of his friend and very much in the mindset of, you know, none of this is worth it at all. Had we not gone on this mission in the first place, Tess is still here. The status quo is still maintained. What do I lose? So there's obviously some trepidation in him. And I think getting to see Bill and Frank's journey and how even Bill was stubborn, begrudgingly stubborn of taking care uh, uh, of uh, accepting Frank into his own uh, sanctuary and then realizing that he enjoys taking care of Frank and that this is purpose for him uh, really speaks to Joel's mission because now Joel really does realize that he is responsible for Ellie and has to get her to where she needs to go in order to fulfill this promise he made to Tess. It's not about saving the world. It's not so much about saving 
the world, but it is about um, finding yourself and somebody else and that having this mission, having this motivation of keeping Ellie safe can perhaps keep Joel alive somehow when you really think about it. So Last of Us continues just to be this amazing, amazing series. Um, and I, I love the fact that we, we are, uh, you know, when we're talking about video game adaptations, we're getting to see when a property is not only given an appropriate budget, but they're allowed to both stay within the confines of the game and do something completely different. I think there's something refreshing in seeing that play out. You know, if you're me, if you're me, especially, there's something refreshing in getting to see all of that play out. So check it out. Uh, you can catch episodes of The Last of Us every Sunday on HBO. You definitely want to go to HBO Max, though, if you want to catch uh, if you want to catch those episodes after they've been shown new. So that's going to bring us to the big part of our episode where we are talking knock at the cabin. Uh, first thing that came out uh, came that, that, that was on my mind as I was leaving is that uh, we're never going to have a shortage of apocalyptic end of the world films. It, it's honestly just a genre that we as humans seem to be fascinated with, even though we do so much in the actual world, not on screen, to push us closer and closer to the actual end of the world. So it's like fascinating that we just have this like obsession and love with things that are into the world. And who knows, maybe it's a form of therapy. Uh, we see the possibility of the world uh, ending and having somebody that's able to stop it, like with a push of a button, or if they kill a monster, something along those lines. And maybe that allows us to, uh, to expel all this pent up fear we have of things just ending. And most of the time in films like these, uh, it's putting man against nature or God or something extraordinary. Uh, there's always a palpable fear of whether the nuke to reignite the sun is actually going to fire at the end of the movie, or our hero's going to make it to the last remaining ship that's getting them off this apocalyptic world that's blown up, or it's it's being caught by asteroids and meteors. There's nothing wrong with that, uh, but we've seen those beats play out over and over with varied results each time. That that's really every end of the world uh, end of the world film. That we're gonna get that's really what most of us go and see them for because typically they're these like big budget big spectacle kind of films and that's part of what makes uh Shyamalan's knock at the cabin which is based on the book cabin at the end of the world by paul g tremblay so interesting to watch um it's very much not the typical end of the world story that we're used to seeing and i know i i, I completely realize that it's not that it's unique by itself, that it's the only film about the end of the world that keeps things fairly contained. I, I completely understand that. But it is nice to kind of see it with such a big presentation. You know, uh, Eric Andrew and Wynn, played by Jonathan, Jonathan Groff, Ben Aldridge, and Kristen Coy, are enjoying a vacation uh, at their secluded cabin when four strangers, played by Dave Batista. Uh, Rupert Grit, Nikki Amuka Bird, and Abby Quinn mysteriously show up stating that the only way to stop the impending end of the world is by this family of three willingly choosing to sacrifice one of their own. Uh, there's no outrageous journey to the center of an asteroid. Uh, there's no world-saving cure to this disease that can be found. 
there's just a few hours and this impossible choice with billions of lives in the balance. Now, Shyamalan, who co-wrote this script along with uh, Steve Desmond and Michael Sherman, is able to keep the audience asking the same question with increasing stakes to it. So, would you kill someone you love to save a stranger? Then it's, would you kill someone you love to save four specific strangers? Would you kill someone you love to save seven billion strangers? Can you sacrifice everything to save everything? It's, it's honestly a gut-wrenching choice. And especially because we get to see flashbacks of Eric and Andrew's life together, um, things like meeting Andrew's parents uh, when they adopt Wynn, uh, an attack in the bar. It, it becomes more and more complicated for us as the audience, I feel, to make that choice. Um, and, and it really ends up posing a different question of, is the end of the world really coming if this family can't make an unmakeable choice? Um, and I, I like the fact that it did endear us to Andrew and uh, Andrew and Eric quite, uh, quite a lot in this because I think given what the motivation is and what this family has to do, without getting more connected to Andrew and Eric, then we don't see really the tough choice here in this family making the choice of who's gonna end up being the one to sacrifice themselves. Um, that said, the story does forego most, most of the typical horror uh, staples that are even like present in a lot of Shyamalan's other films uh, to instead stay focused on just like this growing sense of urgency throughout it and some of the gut-wrenching actions that these intruders are forced to take every few hours as a way to motivate this family to make this horrible, horrible choice. And combine that with the ending, which this is not a spoiler, but uh, I think a number of people are going to leave their theater uh, holding their loved ones just a little bit tighter hoping that a choice like this is never going to come. Because, I mean, the movie is still scary. Uh, but that real fear comes from uh, these strangers in this family slowly realizing that what they truly believe may even be worse than what they imagined originally. And Groff and Aldridge are tremendous as this disbelieving couple. They're desperately holding on to the slightest glimmer of hope um, that this entire ordeal will be some kind of joke. Or that even if it's not a joke, that it is some kind of attack on them for being who they are, that there's some kind of believable reason why they're being put through this test because obviously the world can't be ending based on this small family of three having to decide one of them dying. The world ending cannot be based on, uh, on that. And you can really see that desperation grow in their performances as uh, they endlessly argue in this movie with their uh, with their actors. And I love Groff. I, I love Jonathan Groff, honestly. Um, it, it's funny because, you know, my wife's reminding me endlessly about uh, him and uh, Hamilton. And, you know, I'm just thinking of The Matrix recently because, like, he put in this fantastic performance as Agent Smith or just Smith in uh, the last Matrix movie, Matrix, uh, Matrix Re Revolution? Matrix Revolution? Revelation? I got, I don't remember. I don't remember at this point. Uh, one is the third one and the other one is that. <laughs> I think it's Revol Revolution. 
Thank you for Trevor Nelson. Yeah, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Uh, either way. Um, as for our other cast, Rupert Grant, Nikki Amuka Bird, Abby Quinn, they all put in some strong performance uh, performances here of being like everyday unassuming people tasked with this like absolutely gruesome job. But this is Batista's show. There's been so much talk recently, I feel, on social media about wrestlers turned actors and their actual skill, like who's the best out of them. And I'm not really going to dive into that. Um, I'm just going to say it. Batista is, without question, the best wrestler turned actor. There is no question to that. That man uh, has just found himself putting in some of the best performances in a vast variety of different films out there. And Knock at the Cabin may actually be his ultimate best performance that he's done so far. Um his character Leonard may honestly bring you to tears because uh, when you look at Batista on screen, like you have to kind of take him for what he is, like this big souped up muscly dude with all these tattoos who looks like he's going to absolutely rip you in half. And none of that strength, none of that imposing stature, none of that at all um, could help the character Leonard in this situation. And I think that's phenomenal to see somebody like Batista in this role because you would think with everything that's on the line, somebody that looks like that might try different ways to encourage this family to make this choice. But instead, he is just this gentle giant throughout the film that, that's pleading, pleading with this family to make this terrible, terrible choice to save everyone. And you, it, like, you could see this man is just putting in like the best work he has done. It, it's the best thing about this film is Batista's performance. He is just so damn good. In this, the other thing being uh, being the score from Herdis uh, Stepan Dottas, um, the music, especially in horror, is always so vital to selling so many different like feelings and uh, like parts throughout like a good film. And this music definitely helped elevate a number of scenes that just needed the perfect emotion to go with it. If anything, the score ends up being one of the few terrifying parts of the film, and I mean that positively. But it just shows up with a specific track to bring tension, dread, and in some places, hope. And I, I know we get, a, we get a good score in a lot of the films that we see, but here in Knock at the Cabin, it really, really helped sell the futility of what was going on. Now, I've never read Tremblay's book. It's in the Amazon cart. I'm going to get it at some point there. But I will say that the main problem I had with Knock at the Cabin is just how straightforward it really is. Um, I mentioned we get to see a bit of Andrew and Eric's lives in these flashbacks. But outside of that and, and the few news reports they watch, there's not much other exposition. And I think, again, without reading the book, I don't know. I think part of that can be attributed to wanting the audience members to really question themselves whether or not this whole thing is legitimate in the first place. But the unfortunate truth is, is that with a, a 140 minute showtime, it just leaves you wanting more because the pace just keeps on switching from being brisk to just being like such a trod. And we're not given more information to really fill a lot of these gaps. I've been told that the ending has also uh, been been set up tremendously different from the way it is in the book as well. And uh, I, you know, hearing that and seeing what the ending was, it makes sense because the ending that we get here kind of seems very, very much not like a cop out. Cop out's not the right word, but it definitely seems like it's taking the easy route. And I think that going the route that apparently is the true ending would have shown real dedication to 
how how gut-wrenching this story and this choice actually could really be. And again, it's interesting that this is based on a book because I found myself finding, I'm sure, unintended connections to the film Devil that Shyamalan produced uh, about a group of strangers stuck in an elevator and they realize the devil's amongst them. Um, It's unintended, but the fact that Devil has this very, very much uh, like faith-based, uh, faith-based crisis, like pushing it, and so does knock at the cabin. I realize that's kind of easy, but everything just kind of seems like it could be in the exact same world as well, too. That you know, maybe in Devil, these group of people who are being tested in this elevator are kind of going through the same test that this family in knock at the cabin are going through right now. And that might just be me trying to merge Shyamalan projects, but it it seems it seems realistic, it seems accurate though. Uh, I didn't expect myself to get emotional in the film, as even with the fantastic ending, I could, I, could, I felt I could see a lot of those easy emotional traps coming. I mean, it's an end-of-the-world movie. That's how they do it when somebody has to ultimately sacrifice themselves. They find a way to pull at their heartstrings. I'm not saying that's what somebody ends up doing, but I definitely think I, I, I had a tear or two rolling down my cheek at the end of the film when the credits were rolling, because you do connect with these characters, and... Uh, and, and on both sides. And because of that, I, I think it makes it hard for us to actually decide for ourselves what we would do if uh, somebody came knocking at our door with the same proposition. So go see Knock at the Cabin. It's in theaters now. The latest M. Night Shyamalan hit. You don't want to miss it. Dave Batista is phenomenal in this one. Roy here is a big fan of Fangoria. So if you want to check out the world's best horror magazine that's out there get a chance to get yourself your own subscription which i just got my first one back in 2022 and i don't regret it for a second but if you want your own fangoria subscription or you like the fangoria merchandise then head over to the fangoria shop and use my link if you want to save yourself some money folks that's an easy one to remember just go to shop fangoria.com slash axdew again that's shop.fangoria.com slash axdew or use my specific code axdew at checkout you can save 20 percent off your entire order and that implies two uh, subscription and one-time orders as well you don't want to miss out folks because with the magnitude of horror movies we've had released in the last few years and with what we have on the horizon fangoria is going to be your number one source for all that great juicy bloody information in the world of horror. So again, head to shop.fangoria.com. Hey there, folks. Thanks for tuning in to T-Watch This Scary Movie. I appreciate you checking out another review or movie news, whether we're talking movies, TV shows, books, or games, whatever. It's all scary. Remember, you can check out new episodes every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on the YouTube page video. That's youtube.com slash C slash Scary Movie. Again, youtube.com slash C slash Scary Movie. And you can check out the audio version on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Just search T Watch the Scary Movie or Twaza. Don't forget, my name is T. We've been talking scary movies. Stay scared.